Why the Tri-City Center is called the Mall with a Heart. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM. Welcome to the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show, created and hosted by Scott Knudsen, to explore the crossroads of horses and the business world. On today's show, Scott visits with photographer, documentary, and commercial filmmaker, Bud Force. Now here's your host, Scott Knudsen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show. I'm your host, Scott Knudsen. Thank you so much for joining us. Whether you're listening to us on the radio station KCAA, the NBC affiliate out in California, or watching our podcast on one of our many platforms, we appreciate it. Today's Cowboy Entrepreneur Show, we have a very special guest. It's going to be a fun show. Bud Force is on the show. Bud, welcome to the show. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. So Bud is a commercial filmmaker. He's a photographer, and he's lived an incredible life. So I can't wait for uh, for him to share his knowledge and some of his stories. So uh, Bud, where were you born? I was born in Fort Worth, Texas. Awesome. Awesome. But you were raised in Nevada, I think I read. Yes, sir. My dad was in the military, so we traveled around quite a bit, left Texas when I was a baby, and we moved to Guam. My dad flew B-52s, lived in Guam for a few years, and then we moved to uh, around Lake Tahoe, California, in the Truckee area. I grew up in the Sierra Nevada mountains until I was 14, and we moved back to Texas, to Weatherford, Texas. Very cool. So what was it like growing up in Nevada in in the mountains? Man, it was um, it was pretty neat. We backed up to the Truckee River. Uh, we were about 30 feet from the Truckee River, and on the other side of the river was just national forest and BLM land. So, Oh, man. What a place to grow up in. It was amazing. Uh, I had a dog out there, a Labrador, and we would just go out in those hills and those mountains and, and spend all day. So it was, a, it was a really neat way to grow up and something I wouldn't trade for the world. Oh, man, and Truckee is a pretty neat community as well. It's really touristy, but it's a neat community. Well, it sure is. It's changed a lot since I lived there back in, I think we moved in 1993. And I went back a few years ago, and yeah, it's pretty touristy now. Yeah, yeah, that's cool, man. I, um, so so growing up in Texas, when you came back in your late teenage years, um, what was the transition like going you know, from the Nevada and the mountains to back to Texas? Well, it was definitely a huge change. When I lived in Nevada, I was skiing a lot. I was actually on a youth race team. And so I was really busy with all of that. Uh, But I wanted to move to Texas. That's where my grandparents were. And I had this idea of Texas in my mind. Uh, That was a bit romantic. So we came back. My parents bought 50 acres. They got some horses and cattle. And we moved right in the middle of kind of ranch land or cutting horse land there between Weatherford and Granbury. And it really spurred my love of, of agriculture and, and ranching. Oh, wow. That's a great horse country. A lot of great trainers up there, cattle country too, but lots of good cutting horses. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, uh, so did you stay with cutting horses or did you go into a different discipline? Uh Really, when I was growing up, I was riding recreationally just there at my parents' place. I started working for some local area ranchers, and then I started working for some cutting horse places whenever I was 16, 17 years old, and kind of hopped around loping horses at at different cutting horse ranches until, you know, really through college. Well, what a great foundation, though. I think that's so important just to jump, not to jump, but to go from one trainer to another trainer, ride different horses. And get that foundation, find out which way you want to go. And you can always learn from them. Well, absolutely. Yeah, I learned a little bit here and there from everybody. So That's awesome. That's awesome. So so you went into rodeo, so, yeah. <laughs> which is cool. Yeah, about the same time when I was, uh, I think, 16 years old, I started, or 15 years old, I started riding steers. And then that went into bulls around 15, 16. And then I rode until I was about 20, rode bulls until I was about 20. So what was that like uh, telling the parents, hey, I think I want to start riding bulls or at least start on steers and go up to bulls? You know, they weren't super supportive. 
And uh, I've seen a lot of parents who are super supportive of their kids riding bulls. Of course, I only have one daughter. Uh, I don't think she's going to be riding bulls. But if I if I had some boys and they were wanting to ride bulls, um, it'd be a hard thing probably for me to get behind as well. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand, man. We've been there, and and I have one daughter as well. And I, you know, I don't, you know, even the young colts, I get, I don't want her to ride. So um, I understand right. the parents' view on that for sure. Um, for sure. So, so, uh, what made you stop riding bulls? I had a bad wreck, uh, in Morgan mill. Yeah. It was a summertime deal, uh, kind of a three-part buckle series. It was in between rodeos and I went to a practice pin there in Morgan mill and, uh, got on a relatively easy bull, but I got hung up and make a long story short, I got stomped pretty bad and they life flighted me to Harris hospital. And I spent about six months in a wheelchair before I was back on my feet and about a full year recovering. And that pretty much ended my, my rodeo career. Gotcha. So, so I, I guess for people watching this or listening to it on KCAA, um, for somebody that's been in a wreck, whether it's a bull ride or whether it's car or whatever, horse wreck, you know, and you're sitting in that wheelchair, what fuels you to get out of the chair to um, start your amazing career in a different direction. Yeah, there was there was no real choice. I mean, it was certainly <laughs> challenging. Yeah, I mean, it, was, it was definitely a challenging time. I I really didn't know the direction I was going to head afterward because I just that, that was the path I was on, or that right. I thought I was on. And so when that happened, it took me a few years to figure out. Okay, well, here's what I think I'm going to do next. Uh, I was going to Weatherford College when I got hurt, and I ended up going back to school. I took some time off and, and went to work, kind of hopped around at some different jobs, and then went back to school at Weatherford, uh, finished up there, and then went to Texas A&M University and majored in journalism uh, because I thought, well, I'll, I'll be a writer, and I'd always enjoyed writing, and, and so, you know, I kind of followed that career trajectory for a while, which eventually derived into photography and filmmaking down the road amazing amazing so so why did you choose AM? my grandfather had gone to a and uh he played on the 39 national championship football team the only year that AM has won the national championship Very so cool. far Very and cool. so i kind of grew up with this you know idea of texas a&m as being the best university my dad was a big fan of a&m my whole family was and so when it was time to choose a, a four-year university, that's where I ended up going. Very cool. Very cool. So so for the kids out there, or not even kids, just anyone wanting to go back to school um, with journalism or to write, what's some advice you can give them? You know, why did you pick, and I, I know you said you like to write, but journalism, uh, you know, you're going from a wheelchair and riding bulls, and you're like, man, I want to become a writer. I've always liked it. And then you jumped to journalism. How did you do that? How did you say, I'm going to commit to that? Like I say, I mean, I, when I was in school at Weatherford, even when I was writing some of my favorite classes were my English classes in high school, I always liked creative writing and going into A&M. In fact, my original degree was agriculture journalism. They had a program there for, that was that specific. And so that's the program I entered under. And then I thought, well, other than it be limited primarily to agriculture, maybe I'll just do a general journalism degree. And so that was the transfer into it. And even though I was in journalism and not in the ag program specifically, I, I was interning for Texas Cooperative Extension, writing the Texas Crop and Weather Report and kind of these little articles on everything from chiggers to um, you name it. I mean, whatever it may be, right. specific topics. Uh, too much rain specific topics, flood related topics. And, and so I, I, that kept my love going and my, my enjoyment of it, but that's how I went into journalism from weather. Very cool. Very cool. Very cool. And once again, it sounds like kind of like when you were starting to ride, you're riding from different trainers in different places, you know, and that kind of got you to a certain level. Well, now you're writing different articles about anything and that probably helped with your writing. Sure. No, it was, I really enjoyed my internship there and it helped shape me, you know, as far as moving forward. No doubt that, about it. That is awesome, man. That is awesome. So 
Scott will be right back with more from Bud Force. Hi, I'm Scott Knudsen, host of the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show. Heard on KCAA, Fridays, 3 p.m. Pacific. I'd like to talk to you about something I'm very passionate about. Those that know me know I love my coffee. In the morning, afternoon, and even late in the evening, I enjoy a good cup of coffee almost any time of the day. Now, my team at the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show has been working for several months on creating and introducing our own brand of coffee. We wanted to make sure that we got it just right. We don't want to put our name on anything unless we're 100% certain that it's the best product available, and we've finally done it. We have created a wonderful line of coffees, 13 fantastic flavors offered in whole bean, ground, and K-cups, any way you like to brew your coffee. Now, each of our coffees carries our brand, the very same brand that we put on our horses, our trailers, and our chaps. So you know that this is a quality product. And we only use 100% Arabica beans, the very best beans available. Just listen to some of these wonderful blends and flavors. Jamaican Me Crazy, Honduran San Marcos, Chocolate Cherry Amaretto, Breakfast Blend, and my very favorite, Haley's Blend. A coffee so good, we named it after my daughter. You can order these coffees today by going online to javacowboy.com. That's javacowboy.com. And if you order today, you can get an extra 10% off your final purchase just by entering the promo code COWBOY on checkout. Remember, that's promo code COWBOY for an extra 10% off. Just go to javacowboy.com to order your coffee today. Something really cool I read about, and and I I hope you expand on it, is the Texas Tax Force 1. And and I haven't heard of this before, and I was uh, really interested if you could share that with the audience. What that sure. experience was like. I mean, I couldn't imagine. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. So when I graduated from AM, I went to work for Texas Task Force One, which is one of 28 federal urban search and rescue teams under the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, Texas has two teams. Uh, most states have one. Uh, of course, not every state. Like I said, there's only 28 teams. But I joined Texas Task Force One. And the way I would describe the team is, to a lay person is whenever you watch the news and you see a big natural disaster or a man-made disaster, uh, the most recent one that comes to mind, of course, would be the hurricanes, but also the building collapse in Miami-Dade. When you see the white helmets out there working, usually in blue or gray uniforms, those are the federal task forces. And so that's what Texas Task Force One was. And so I joined that team, went to uh, years of training and uh, and began deploying with the team. My first deployment was Hurricane Katrina in, in New Orleans. What a first first call, you know? Yeah. Going to New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. Goodness. You're trading, trading one adrenaline rush from riding bulls to another. I mean, just to go in and help people. Um, what, what was it like when you put your foot down the first time in New Orleans for Hurricane Katrina? Uh, it was absolutely surreal. You know, the entire city was without electricity. Uh, there was devastation, of course, everywhere. You couldn't drive anywhere, so we were in Zodiac boats. Um, Can you explain evening, what that is? What, what's a Zodiac oh, boat? Like those black rafts you see on the Navy SEAL commercials. Okay. Like those are Zodiacs. Okay. Uh, so we'd be in those kind of black rafts and and go around and and rescue as many people as you possibly can. But whenever the sun would set, you'd see the skyline of the city. There were several chemical fires all over the city, you know, with plumes of smoke, and you'd see UH-60 helicopters and and what have you. And it was just a surreal uh, like picture of of what like Armageddon really at that point in time. It was. It was insane and so that whenever we got out there that's the very first thing I remember and then we stayed there for nearly a month off and on. Wow incredible incredible and you wrote a book about being in in urban search and rescue correct? Yes sir yeah I sure did Texas Task Force One Urban Search and Rescue. So uh, so we're going to put the cover up. So if somebody wants to purchase that, I, I, I can only imagine what's in it. So so you're you're doing the search and rescues and, and I guess the journalism came through in you or did you just say, I got to get these stories out for people to read? My uh, my role with that was in basically in uh, 
in recon in a way. I was, was what they call a technical information specialist. So I would go out with the first squads on a deployment and I would gather photo and video intelligence that we would send back to our base of operations in Austin. And they would determine, okay, here's where we need to put a squad. Here's another area where we need to put a squad in this grid, this grid, what have you. And, and so that was my role. So as I did that, even though at the time I was shooting photography from a purely informational perspective, uh, not an artistic perspective, I still enjoyed the act of shooting photos and being in that type of environment that is, uh, even though it's, it's a devastating environment, it's still, of course, visually rich because of the nature of what it is. And so I started shooting pictures of, of the disasters and then where we trained which was in College Station at the Texas A&M University fire training field, the largest one in the world. There's live fire props. So when we weren't on deployments, I was shooting a lot of photography and video of these live action fires and people training on these things and just really enjoyed it and spent a lot of time with media and learning about photographers and videographers. And, and that's where that transition happened into the visual arts. And I stayed with the team full time until 2006, remained with the team until 2010 on a reserve status and continued to go to deployments, but left full time status in 2006 and became a, a full time freelance photographer at that time. And then I've been independent ever since. So you're an entrepreneur. I'd like to think so. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Maybe some advice you can give to the to everyone that's either listening yeah. or watching but so so what was it like so you're transitioning to start your own business to be a, a, a be a photographer photojournalist what was your first job or how did you start because there's so many people out there want to make that jump what did you do sure yeah so at the time we had the yellow pages still mm -hmm. so i went through every page of the yellow pages and saw companies or even media outlets that I thought, okay, this might be a good fit. I'll reach out to them. And then, you know, we had the search engines at that time. They weren't what they are today, but I used them and I found all the publications I could possibly find in Dallas, Fort Worth. That's where I was moving to. That's where my gotcha. girlfriend had moved. Who's my wife now. Very cool. And um, so I reached out to all these publications and surprisingly several wrote me back and I went in for a few interviews and, and eventually started working uh, around the area and just built on it from there. Very cool. So, so what was the first one that you went to work for that said, Hey, come on up for an interview? Yeah, it was the, uh, it was actually the Dallas business journal and we had an interview scheduled a huge ice storm came into DFW and uh I lived in Fort Worth and the interview was in Dallas, which is an hour drive on a good day. And with the ice storm, I thought it'd be two or three hours. So I gave myself three hours of time and I left the house at maybe 5 a.m. or something. I think my interview awesome. was eight and drove in this ice storm. And it was me and like 10 other people, I think, on the roads at that time. Looking back on it, hindsight's 2020. And it was it was just super unintelligent to do that. <laughs> show some grit though <laughs> well I couldn't reach them you know to tell them hey I can't come in and so I was worried I'd miss my big opportunity my big break with the Dallas Business Journal and so I was driving down Interstate 20 and I remember at one point in time I was driving and my truck lost control and I was going really slow everybody was maybe 10 miles an hour at a max but I remember doing a 180 but I just kept going at the same speed, the same direction, but I was facing everybody behind me. And then that truck just went back straight. Oh <laughs> and for some God. reason, I kept on driving. <laughs> I got there. Of course, nobody was there. And uh, so I stayed till it warmed up a little bit and drove home and, and let them know. And, and the lady said, all right, we don't need to have an interview. Here's your first assignment. Very cool. And, she gave me an environmental portrait to go shoot and I thought I'd absolutely made it I was I was getting paid to go shoot a photograph and that was the start of it 
that that's such a cool story story but it just shows the grit and determination of getting having that opportunity and then showing up at a big facility and you're the only one there and, and <laughs> that's pretty cool that's pretty cool um so so with the transition you know you're going from the yellow pages now you're we're going to drones and new media so how do you Every year, it seems like there's new ways to do things, better ways, quicker things. How do you keep adjusting to stay on top of the game? Because some people struggle with that. Some people are afraid of it. Um, change isn't necessarily bad, but it's changed so much in that environment. How do you do that? It's a challenge. It's a, it's a challenge to stay on top of all the technological aspects. Right. If you are a... Um, I mean, every industry probably has new products coming out each year, but if you're a roofer, let's say, or a painter or something along those lines, there may be new roofing materials every 10 years, but it's not this continual changing of the landscape every couple of months or every year. We buy new cameras almost every year oh my goodness. because the technological progression is just skyrocketing on what these things can do. You know, we used to shoot standard definition and then it went to high definition, 4K. Now there, you know, you need the 8K camera. Clients are asking for that new uh, audio capabilities. So it's just old fashioned research. You know, you, you have to stay on the ball as far as the technological aspects of it. But at the same time, you have to hone your like baseline craft. You know, you can become a master electrician and let's say the basics of electricity don't really change. But in this field, you have to really hone your craft and at the same time, stay on that technological curve to be relevant. Because I can't really go out with an old fashioned Super 8 camera, except for in, you know, a very specific project and, and expect to make a living. You know, I have to be using the latest and greatest, just like everybody else out there, so. Right. Well, that, that's tough. So what, what's a tip maybe give somebody that's trying to get better? Uh, do, how, do you, how do you research something like that? You just stay on the internet and just look for new things? Do you go to trade shows? Do you just call um, other people in the field? Or what, what's something they can do to help them get to that next level? Probably all the above. Yeah. I mean, I certainly go to trade shows. I go to workshops. You know, I have friends in the industry, of course. Uh, so we chat about the new cameras. I think once you're in it and you're working it, you know, it just happens by default. But one thing I would say too, is not to get so wrapped up that you, you can't work or you don't feel like you can work because you don't have the latest and greatest, you know, with photography and, and videography, but specifically photography, you've only got two elements. You've got the composition And then you have the exposure and the technical elements, but the composition doesn't change whether you're using a phone or you're using the best camera in the world. And that's a huge part of the game. So whether you're shooting still photos or video, I would say if you don't have the latest and greatest for whatever reason, you can still work on your composition. You can still be creative with what you have. And one of my sayings is just do the best you can with what you have to work with. Cause we would all like to be working with more, I suppose, no matter what it is we're doing. And so if you just do the very best you can with what you have to work with, you'll progress in that manner until you've got something better to work with and you'll be that much further ahead of the game. Yeah, I, I love that man so much. And, and I think that's someone that, you know, I, I hear from people that say, Hey, I don't have this. I can't compete or I can't, move but what you're saying is you can move forward just get really good at what you're using and as you get better the tools are just going to get better naturally totally and that's how I look at life overall whether I'm riding a horse I don't ride the best horses I can't afford the best horses Uh, my truck I mean whatever it may be my, my family I just do the very best I can with 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 what I have to work with you know and and everybody's got something I love that so much. And, and that's why I was so excited to have you on the show, because, you know, you're sitting in a wheelchair from a bull riding injury and, and you're looking at the next thing. You know, you're, you're looking in the yellow pages for a job and there's an ice storm. You get there. You're always looking for the next way to get there. But as you're going down the road, you're still getting better. You're not skipping steps. 
And, and I think that's so important. Um, so thanks for sharing that. So, so uh, let's, let's go to film. So you're, you're, you're the founder and, and uh, co-partner in two film companies or production companies, Ultralight Films and 1922 Films. Um, so how did you make the transition from uh, being a photographer into film? Did you just wake up or is it something you've always wanted to do? No, it's not something I always wanted to do. The same with still photography too. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember when I was in Weatherford College before I got hurt, I went into a computer literacy class that was a required class. And I walked in one day and we were going to learn how to set up a new thing called electronic mail, email. And we were all going to get an electronic mail account, which is what we called it in the class. I think that was the name of the class, something like very cool setting up electronic mail. So we, um, I remember sitting down in my seat and thinking, I mean, literally thinking I'm a bull rider. I don't give a crap about electronic mail. Yeah. I don't look at my real mail yeah. to today, which is such a, such a big perspective. <laughs> but, um, but the way I, I got in the video was, you know, I was of course a freelance photographer and in, in 20, in 2009, Nikon released a camera called the Nikon D90. And that was the first DSLR camera, basically a camera with a removable lens for lay people. It was the first DSLR camera that could shoot video. And it opened up a lot of capabilities that regular camcorders didn't have for a number of reasons. Right. But it, it basically improved what you could do with video. And then shortly after that, Canon started releasing all of these cameras like the Canon 7D and even Captain America, which came out around that time, they started using these little cameras some in the, in the, you know, in this huge blockbuster and other shows started using them. And I thought, wow, you know, you can really go and do a new version of storytelling with these. And it's something that I could enter because I could afford these little cameras. And so that started the transition into video. And I saw some different production companies and projects online that inspired me. Short film. And I started making short films. Uh, basically, I started selling those short films to companies. And it just progressed to where now I very rarely get hired for a photo shoot and almost everything I do is, is filmmaking. So I was an independent, like a freelancer for a while. And I realized I would need to set up a production company to really take it to the next level. Because with filmmaking, unlike photography, it's much more collaborative usually. You can certainly go and make a short film on your own, but if you have a team of specialists, it makes it that much better. You know, if you have dedicated editors, musicians, sound designers, everything that goes into a film. And so I started Ultralight Films as a production company and we built that business. And then 1922 Films was born from the fact that um, we wanted to make a movie and for a movie, you usually create a dedicated production company for that movie, because a movie in essence is its own business. It's, it's a micro business um, or like a flashbang business. You know, you create this widget and you put it out there into the world. So we created 1922 films uh, for a movie. Very cool, very cool. So we met in Dillon, Montana. For, for people that might not know, at um, the, the health or the uh, horse, human and nature conference uh, put on by Montana Center of Horsemanship. And they were screening at the University of Montana Western, uh, your, your new film, your film, and are y'all's film through 1922 called Cowboys, a documentary portrait. And, and, and the response from the crowd, I've seen it a couple of times and I love it, um, was tremendous. You know, and it's raw and it's, it, it shows you the different seasons and it's just so beautiful. So, so when you created your, your, your new production company, did you know this was going to be the film? Yes. So the, the idea for the film came before the production company for sure. Okay. Uh, yeah. The, Growing up around the cowboy lifestyle, growing up working on ranches, uh, having rodeo, been in that culture for several years, 
I just hadn't really seen a documentary I thought was authentic to the working cowboy mm -hmm. and also something that was created that might be uh, viewable by the widespread public. You know, there's a couple super hyper authentic docs out there about cowboys, but they're more by cowboys for cowboys, more of home video type movies. Right. Um, and so we wanted to create something super cinematic and talk to my wife about it. She was really supportive. That day it became real in my mind. The film was going to happen. Uh, made that decision. Nothing was going to stop it. Uh, aside from major catastrophe. And shortly after that, I met John Langmore, uh, who's a cowboy photographer, has an amazing book called Open Range. Okay. Uh, I'd taken out an office next to him and we hit it off. And uh, when I met him, I, I, you know, I realized he's this cowboy photographer, told him the project I was working on. Well, his book, he'd been working on the, the four previous years. And he'd spent time out West in Nevada and Oregon and a few other places and had developed relationships with different ranches. And I said, well, hey, why don't we partner up on this project I'm working on? And maybe you can open up the doors to some of those ranches. And he came on board and uh, a lady named Felice Tosfunke, she came on board shortly after that as our creative producer. And we basically uh, went to town or we went to the range and, and, and got started. And we filmed for the next two years and, and created the, the movie. It, it, it's absolutely beautiful. It's so real. Thank you for listening to the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show. Scott will be right back with Bud Force. For more information on Scott Knudsen, the Cowboy Entrepreneur, visit us online at cowboyentrepreneur.com. Hello, I'm Scott Knutson, host of the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show. I want to tell you about a product I've tried and I love and I feel the Cowboy Entrepreneur audience will as well. It's Rebellious Infusions. Rebellious Infusions, they're little packets of flavor. And you know, it gets hot in South Texas, over 100 degrees every day. And I like my water, but it's water. So I use these infusions, put them in my water. It makes it cold. It's great flavor, zero sugar, zero calories. It's pure energy infusions, rebellious infusions. Go to drinkrebellious.com or on all social media platforms. Drink Rebellious. So when, when you did the film, so you, you get your partners, you, you know you're going to make this, this film. You start mm -hmm. your production company. So do you kind of have it written what you're going to do or the scenes or the seasons I'm going to be at this ranch? Or how do you, for someone like me or maybe someone listening or, or watching, what's the next steps? Well, when you're making a documentary film that's not backed by a studio or any film that's not backed by a studio, the number one step is to figure out how to pay for it because it costs money. So you have to get funding. And that's funding and distribution Funding's at the beginning, distribution's at the end, and they're the two hardest parts. Making the film in the middle is kind of the easiest part. I mean, it's it certainly wasn't, wasn't quite as challenging. So it's your passion. It's your passion. So that's yeah. that's the fun part. Yeah. Um, we had relationships with the ranch. Most of the ranches prior, like I say, John had some relationships out west. Faley had some relationships on Singleton ranches and a few others. I had relationships with the four sixes and Tongue River Ranch here in Texas. So we kind of pooled our resources and were able to go out and film at these ranches because of course they don't just let anybody in through those gates. Right, right. Uh, there were a few ranches like Babbitt's in Arizona. We didn't really have a prior relationship, but words, it's a small community and word spread pretty quickly what we were doing. And I think folks realized our heart was in the right place. Right. And so, folks like Babbitts, they let us on the ranch willingly and, and were super supportive and, and helped us reach our goals in making the film. That's wonderful. And, and we have the trailer and we're going to put that in the show for sure. So everybody can see the trailer and get excited. So when they want to watch the film, or, and I think everybody should, how, what's the best way for people to watch the film? Well, it's available on multiple platforms, Amazon, iTunes, uh, Apple TV, and others. So you can either go to the platforms themselves and search for it, or you can go to thecowboymovie.com and get direct links to those platforms. And also 
if you wanted to buy a Blu-ray or a DVD, you can do that off of the off of the website, thecowboymovie.com. Very cool, very cool. So what, what surprised you, because growing up in the industry and around cowboys, what surprised you, like going into the film thinking, we're going to do this ranch and this is what I'm going to see, and maybe it wasn't that way. Was there any surprises for you? Uh, really, the the biggest surprise for me was up in buckaroo culture. So in the mm -hmm. cowboy world, in the working cowboy world, and that's all this film is about, by the way, is working cowboys, not rodeo athletes, not family ranch uh, cowboys, even though they do the same work just as authentically. This film is about ranches that run full crews of horseback cowboys and the ranches themselves are massive. Some of the largest cattle operations really in the world. The smallest ranch we shot on was 187,000 acres and the largest was 1.1 million acres. But within the working cowboy world, you have two different cultures, uh, cow punchers and buckaroos. And there's a number of differences between those cultures, geographical, stylistically mm -hmm. uh, utilitarian and how they work their cattle. But your cow punchers are from Texas, generally in New Mexico, Arizona. Your buckaroos are gonna be more Northern Nevada, Oregon, Idaho. Uh, Montana is a mixture of, of, of both. But like I say, they dress different. Uh, buckaroos, one of the most signifying differences you would see right off the bat is they wear flat brimmed hats. Usually uh, they wear chinks instead of shaps or leggings uh, mm -hmm. down here. You know, our hats are, are curved a little bit different stylistically when they're branding in, in buckaroo country, they usually head and heel down here. We just heal our calves and drag them to the fire. So there's, there's differences as far as that goes, but I had never spent any time whatsoever around on a buckaroo ranch, like a, a Northern Nevada Great Basin buckaroo ranch, I had not stepped foot on. And so going, uh, my, man, my first ranch I went to was the YP. So going there and, and seeing real life buckaroos, so to speak, uh, in their natural environment was incredible for me. So, so awesome. So awesome. You got to experience that. So, so, so in the film, there's so many real moments that it's, it, I don't know how you could even plan the timing of it, you know, the birth of a cow and just different things like that. How did you structure it so you could get all these uh, incredible moments? We, you can write a doc as much as you want, but it's real life. So Absolutely. it's going to deviate to some extent. Um, you either going to have happy or unhappy accidents that occur while you're filming. Hopefully they lend more into your story, but you do the best you can to convey this idea that you want to portray. And so we had an idea of, of, of what we wanted to show. I mean, cowboying doesn't really change from year to year. The life cycle of a ranch begins in the spring with the birth of calves or calving and and then it goes to the fall whenever you're shipping and then in the summer and the in the winter is is kind of varied work that depends on where you're located but in the winter you're usually going to be feeding and in the summer moving bulls or fixing fence or what have you and so we had this idea of what we wanted to show as far as the work and the life cycle of the cowboy but we also wanted to get into the personal stories of the cowboys themselves and their families we didn't know as much of what stories were gonna be conveyed because those would bloom in the interviews. Um, so we identified the cowboys we would wanna work with, the ranches we would wanna work with at what times in, in the year. So maybe we would wanna show summer times in the heat of Arizona, but show winters in the blizzards of Montana. So that's how we scheduled everything. and and. And then we would go out and literally document. We didn't stage. There's not a single scene in the movie that's staged outside of the interviews. And so we would go during a blizzard, for, for instance, and we would just film what was happening. And that was it. And that's how we did it. So cool. So, so I know on the ranches and being a cowboy, you, it, it's life or death. You know, it's a serious business and, 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 and injuries happen. So how did you take your crew or how did y'all go out onto a ranch was 
because you know probably the smaller the footprint the better absolutely and we definitely wanted to have a, a small footprint so our crew was never above three people uh which is uh, it's amazing <laughs> seeing the film you would never think that well appreciate it scott yeah. some of our commercial productions are upwards of 30 people mm -hmm. uh some other production companies that do commercial productions they're huge right set of yellowstones something like 400 people lots of people can go into crews but for this as a documentary film crew to go in and authentically simply document the culture we felt like we could only have three people when you show up to these ranches they want to feed you sometimes i mean you know they kind of take you under their wing and you don't want to be a bother they don't want you to slow down the work they're doing uh they don't want you to get hurt but like my co-director john langmore always says he says more importantly they don't want you to get them hurt <laughs> it's yeah, so absolutely <laughs> and uh so we would show up three people myself john who shot all the still photos in the film and then i would bring a uh, a cameraman one of two alternating cameramen tito west and hank wiswrote two supremely talented camera operators we would bring one of those two with us depending on their schedule and so we would show up run all audio run all the visuals the drones everything ourselves and that was our crew at any given moment. John and I, uh, John grew up cowboying in the summers of his youth. He would go out to different ranches with his dad. Of course, I grew up with my history. And so we both had a sense of livestock and how to operate around livestock. Tito and Hank didn't grow up at all around livestock. So there was a bit of a learning curve there, but they were there, you know, they're super cognizant of everything quick studies and they learned okay and we need to stay back right now or you know we can move forward and and all of that because if you if you go in and you mess up a day's work you know or a gather say a three-hour gather and they've got 500 head of of cattle and you mess that up somehow you're probably just going to get kicked off the ranch and not invited back right absolutely so so what was their takeaway your, your the Tito and your camera guys, like if they've never grown up in the industry or seen anything like it, to see what they were able to see firsthand, did, did it change what they thought? I think it was somewhat life-changing. Um, mm -hmm. Hank went on a bunch of our shoots and he went on a wagon. Uh, Tito went on a wagon too. And Very so cool. sleeping in, in sleeping in teepees and you know, something that they didn't even realize existed. And then they're in the midst of it for a week or 10 days. Um, I think that was a huge epiphany as far as, wow, these people are, are really out here doing this. Because you, you can hear that, that people do that. You can even kind of know that people do that or maybe even watch a movie about it. But until you are there waking up in Northern Nevada in the middle of nowhere and you open up your teepee flap, and you smell that sage, you know, and you hear the spurs jingling in the morning and the cattle bawling and you can't hear anything else. It's, it's a magical moment. Absolutely. And I think it touched both of them. Yeah. It'd be hard not to, yeah, I, I just love it. So, so let's talk drones. So, okay. so some of the, some of the scenes in the movie are just are all of them, but there was some that were just spectacular. And I, I know, you, I believe you were driving the drone if that's the correct terminology but i think flying flying, flying the drone, drone. <laughs> flying the drone so driving it whatever it depends I, I, man i don't know but it was incredible you know it I, you could definitely tell your horse sense because you never spooked the herd you know and you know how itchy they get especially with cattle and, and horses absolutely horses they can tell um and how did you do that as far as with the drone to get the scenes you have so many different animals. You know, you got the cowboys, you got your crew, you got your cattle, you got your horses, and there's nothing yeah. else. So the noise and the shadows and such. It was interesting. And, and you're right. And I'm glad you bring up the cowboys too. It's funny because depending on the ranch and the service, everybody's on Facebook these days. And so a couple of the early ranches 
until I learned what to tell them before I started flying, you know, these cowboy crews trot out and it's interesting because they'll take pictures with their phones and post them on Facebook and say, you know, we're doing it like we did in 1880 or whatever, but they're posting it on Facebook. So. <laughs> and uh, oxymoron right there. Yeah, big oxymoron. So there were a couple times where they'd be trotting out single file and I'd see those little blue screens, those little blue Facebook screens as they'd be holding their phone and trotting out. And so I had to tell them like, hey, whenever you guys are trotting out, you know, if you don't mind, just leave your phones in your pocket because it's not going to look good in this movie. No. But of course, the cattle and the horses, you have to be super cognizant about. I mean, the cowboys, too. You can't get too close. These drones, they sound like a hive of bees. And so if you get too close to the cattle, of course, you can spook them with the drone. Right. Uh, so you stay back. You just watch the cattle, watch the progression of the herd. You can see what you're filming while you're filming. So it's almost like you're looking out of a cockpit on your screen but you can also see the drone visually so i would have someone spot the drone and then i would look at the screen and be able to tell like okay we're putting too much pressure on these cattle let's back away a little bit if i ever saw a cowboy look back at it of course i would pull back and then the horses i would always watch their ears and as soon as their ears would kind of their little radars so as soon as they would flip back i would know okay you know here's too close, too close and some of the scenes looked so dramatic. There's a scene in the film where it's, I don't know, maybe 500 head of black Angus cattle going towards a storm with mountains in the background. And that was the first, what I thought was really beautiful scene I'd gotten with the drone and the stars all aligned with the storm and everything else. And I remember my thumb started shaking because I didn't want to mess it up in any way. And, uh, and it made the final cut of the film. But that's basically how I would run the drone and, and try to keep from spooking the animals. But it's interesting. It depends on the animal, too. You know, horses are horses. Some are going to be spooked easier than others. I did have a job a few years ago in Ireland where I'd gotten hired to go all over Ireland and, and fly and film. And sheep, uh, they're scared to death of drones there's no getting around it i mean you have a drone within half a mile of a sheep and they think it's <laughs> four horsemen coming out of the sky to to take them away i mean they are deathly afraid of drones i had no idea no <laughs> idea there's some fun fact for you right there yeah um, for sure so so when you're doing it you know and and what, what's it like when when you're eating at the chuck wagon or you're you're in the tents or you're you're before you go in the tent talking to the cowboys and, you, and you're on the ground can you take our audience to what it was like you know when the cameras are off there's no drones it, is it like what people see in the movies or is it just guys talking around the campfire i mean people are people and cowboys are humans just as much as anybody else. Um, so the conversations are just human conversations, but they primarily revolve around horses. Cowboys talk a lot about their horses, a lot. how the day went that day, their hardware, you know, their bits, who built your spurs. You know, I'm working on a new pair of leggings. You know, most of the conversation definitely revolves in some way around what it is you're doing. Um, the campfire deal, it's kind of interesting because on the wagon, you don't usually have a campfire unless it's the cook's fire because everybody goes to bed so early. You know, you get off work. You might get off work. You know, cowboys usually start really early. So let's say you wake up at four on the wagon. You have breakfast at five. Uh, if you eat at five, of course, everybody gets there almost an hour early to drink coffee. It's almost like you're late if you're not there an hour early. <laughs> Absolutely. You get mounted up. You go catch the horses. You get mounted up. And usually right at daybreak, you're trotting out. And however big that pasture is, you know, a couple hours to gather it, let's say. 
you gather that pasture, you bring them in. If it's a spring wagon, you're usually branding. So then you brand, but hopefully you're finished by lunch. A lot of ranches try to finish by lunch. Uh, but if you're not, then you work until early afternoon. You may go out that afternoon and trot more on another horse and gather up another pasture so you can get started early the next day. But generally you're gonna finish between noon and early afternoon. And then after that, the cowboys go and they take care of their personal tasks, you know, shoe their horses, uh, do whatever they need to do. You eat dinner and then, or supper, and then right after supper, pretty much everybody goes to bed. I mean, really before the sun sets, usually at least in the spring on spring wagons. And so it's not like folks are sitting around a campfire in the evenings necessarily, but in the afternoons, uh, yeah, there's that camaraderie. Everyone's sitting around talking and those conversations, like I say, usually revolve in some form or fashion around the horse, even more so than the cow. Really? Horse. Yeah. yeah. I love that. I, I love that. So, so do you stay in contact with some of the people you met at, at, on the different ranches? Quite a few of them. I mean, the majority of them, really. Cool. Uh, a lot of them have become very close friends. Uh, some of them were friends beforehand. And uh, so, yes, absolutely. So did they see the film? Have they seen the film? Uh, everybody in the movie, as far as I know, has seen the film. So and What was their takeaway? Was it like, wow, that's what we look like? Or were they kind of shocked about what they really overall, did? Overall, it's been a, a completely positive response. You right. know, I haven't. I haven't heard a single cowboy come to us and and say anything negative about the film. Only what I would consider to be genuinely positive comments. I think a lot of the folks in the film were touched by it. Mm -hmm. um, I think we tried to tell the story with a high level of respect, not just for the idea of the American cowboy, but for the individuals in the film itself right. and their unique stories, depending on who they were. Uh, so yeah, I think everyone, as far as I know, is has really enjoyed the film. Oh man, I, I'll tell you what—it was so fun to see them open up and talk during the interview process. Because you know, most of them have been quiet—you know, they don't talk to people. And and opening up once they opened up, man, it was so much fun to watch them and the pride they took in everything. Um, it was really interesting to see. Well, appreciate it, Scott. And whenever we would show up to these ranches, we were usually there a week to 10 days. And um, we would not all, always, but oftentimes try to schedule our interviews for the tail end of a trip. So you can get there and get through some of that buffer of, you know, being a new guy on the crew, basically, uh, with a camera and, and kind of get past all of that. And then get to know the guys a little bit. And once they realize you're not from Hollywood, and you've seen a cow before and you're not going to jump between them and the cow. I think they have a bit of an appreciation for it. Makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. And they appreciate what you did and they probably appreciate you telling their story, you know, because mm -hmm. there's so many people that don't get to see that life, not even for a day. And, and they Absolutely. live it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. so, so what's next for you, bud? Are you working on another film? I'm working on a four part short film series right now for the four sixes ranch one of the ranches awesome. in the movie a legendary big Absolutely. outfit here in texas so i'm right in the midst of that and a few other commercial projects and then we're breaking ground and in the midst of writing a new feature a narrative feature that we hope to have finished up here in the next few years these film projects are definitely long term cowboys took six years to make so it's a slow so it, it was worth every day. Might have not felt it during that day, but it sure was. Well, I appreciate it, man. Absolutely. So when you're not, you know, doing photography or making films or starting production companies, what do you do in your spare time if you have any? Well, I'm an outdoorsman, I guess. I'm an outdoorsy guy. Uh, I have a daughter and my family and I, we love to spend time outdoors. Uh, I day work on different ranches, some of the ranches in the in the film. So I spend a lot of time in the spring and the fall anyways, traveling around different ranches. Uh, we have a family ranch. My, my wife's parents have a family ranch out in Brady. So we spend a lot of time out there, uh, outdoors, hunting, fishing, 
working cattle and that sort of deal. But usually if we have time off, we're outdoors somewhere. Oh, that's awesome, man. That's so awesome. And being with the family makes it even better. So, yes. so what, what's one piece of advice you can give somebody listening to us or watching today? As far as being an entrepreneur, I know we've talked a lot about, you know, working through trials and advancing with different cameras, but just where they are, maybe they're driving down the highway in California, they're watching our podcast sitting at home somewhere else. And how do they get started? Well, there's, there's kind of three things. I think whether you're going to go on a road trip or you're going to make a movie, the hardest part is getting out of the driveway. And after that, that's beautiful. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's just the hardest part of anything is getting out of the driveway. If you're going on a trip, it's hard to get out of the driveway. You know, yeah. if, if you have kids, if you don't have kids, if you're packing up, whatever it is, but once you're on the road, you're on the road, things generally get smoother. So there's that. But then a term I learned in rescue is Semper Gumby, always flexible. And I always like that term, like Gumby, the little green guy. Right, right. Semper Gumby, always flexible. You have to be malleable because nothing's going to go exactly your way. And then, like I said earlier, just doing the best you can with what you got to work with. So if you're flexible, you work with what you got and you're able to get out of the driveway, you know, you can kind of get anything done, I think. Yeah, that's awesome, man. They can achieve their dreams just getting out of the driveway. I, I, I don't know whether any other show and a guest that can go from ranch livestock, ranching to Gumby. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, but thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me, man. Absolutely, man. Have a great day. You too. It's a life not everybody has or understand or will ever understand. seemed like if I didn't do it anymore that, you know, something would be gone. Cowboy's not what you do, it's, it's who you are, you know, it's just something in you. It's rough. Pay's low, houses are rough, the hours are long, and there's isolation and it doesn't work for everybody. My husband said, I've always been a cowboy, never done nothing but be a cowboy. You know, the money isn't important, I'm a cowboy. I said, okay. <laughs> There'll be younger guys that come out and make it for a little while, and then they they just can't take the isolation. And it don't take long once they get out here to know if they're going to make it or not. They've been talking about the cowboy dying for 100 years. That same old-time spirit is still in them, and it always will be. I think you have to like to suffer if you want to really be a good cowboy. Thank you to all the great sponsors of the Cowboy Entrepreneurship. For more information about today's guest, Bud Force, please visit his website at budforce.com. If you or your business is interested in being a sponsor of the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show, please call our office at 830-992-1786 or visit our website, cowboyentrepreneur.com. This is KCAA. What does the Weatherbug app tell you? My commute will be a doozy today. Pack my allergy meds. Lightning. Pick up a pizza, not a tennis racket. With more free map layers than any other weather app, Weatherbug tells you more of what you need to know to prepare you for the unpredictable. Discover why over 10 million users choose Weatherbug. Maybe it's a commute to the couch day. Download the Weatherbug app today for free. 
The staff and families at Toon Time Stereo and Alarm take this special time to recognize and honor the American heroes who have made this country what it is. For those serving in our military to the men and women of our police and fire department, we salute you. This message from Toon Time Stereo and Alarm in Redlands, thanking our troops for their sacrifices, wishing them Godspeed home, and encouraging everyone to hire smart and hire vets. For 24-hour veteran suicide prevention help, call 800-273-8255. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM.